0: Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna lindbergh Cedar Bay Area Burnout Prevention Therapist and Workplace Wellness Consultant. And I'm really excited that you're joining me again for the next episode in the podcast because today I have a little um, different offering than we usually have with the podcast because If you've been tuning in, you know that I usually share therapy concepts, um, and we talk about ways to adapt uh, self-care strategies for everyday use, and today's episode is a little bit different because we're going to turn the tables and actually have a crossover episode with the practice of the practice podcast which is the number one counseling podcast on itunes hosted by joe sanek who is one of my mentors by afar he works out of michigan and you know has this great podcast that i have listened to since the start of my private practice and today's episode is actually a flashback episode because Joe interviewed me on his podcast um, a year ago now, last February, after I launched my uh, practice, Therapy for Real Life. And I just had the opportunity to re listen to this podcast episode. And I thought I'd share it with you today because it does give a lot of the background on my work in burnout prevention. and you know you'll hear me share a little bit more about why I feel so passionate about this work. So usually the podcast will not focus um, on the host. I really want to keep it focused on therapy concepts and self-care. But um, just for the heck of it, I thought I'd share this episode with you um, and share the practice of the practice podcast resource because I do love their work. So enjoy the episode today and let me know if you have any feedback. Tune in for after the show and you'll hear a little bit about some of the updates um, to the practice since this podcast first released. Enjoy!
1: Well, today on the Practice of the Practice podcast, we have Anna lindbergh Cedar. She's a Bay Area psychotherapist who specializes in burnout prevention. She integrates burnout prevention principles throughout her work, counseling individuals, consulting with executive teams, and providing clinical supervision to therapists. Many of Anna's burnout prevention strategies are drawn from training with DBT. Anna, welcome to the Practice of the Practice podcast.
0: Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to to be here. I've really enjoyed listening to the show and every week I get something out of it. So I really, really am appreciative of all the good work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, it's so cool to see how much you've grown your practice and uh, it'll be fun to kind of give back to people that are just at the beginning phases.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Yeah, I'm really happy to be
1: here. Yeah, well, tell me a little bit about when you first started your practice. Well,
0: I started my practice uh, just a year ago, so it's a pretty new venture for me. And uh, I decided to do that after working for 20 years in nonprofits. Um, I started in Latin America building latrines, uh, doing public health work um, and community um, organizing. And after that, I continued to work for the underdog just over and over again. Um, I worked with torture survivors from around the world and uh, as a program director in San Francisco, and I uh, worked in a federal detention center um, doing group therapy, and um, spent the last seven years working primarily with undocumented immigrants um, at a primary care setting doing um, counseling. And so I have had just um, really the good fortune of doing um, really rewarding work. And I am also, you know, I have a family and I have other interests that I want to explore and um, wanted more flexibility in my work. And so it's interesting that I specialize in burnout prevention because, you know, that's that's why I went into private practice is so that I could, you um, I was never necessarily, I didn't need to be my own boss or anything like that. Um, That never was a goal of mine, but it turns out that um, having a private practice lets you choose the work you want to do and the length of your sessions and how frequently you see people. And... Um, I also have a program planning background. I have an MPA and an MSW. Um, So I'm always thinking about how the macro meets the micro. And, um, you know, the whole person and environment thing, I take that really to um, broader
1: levels. And so... I want to interrupt you. I want to go back to working with torture survivors and burnout prevention, because that to me stands out as really really tough work like if anyone can talk about burnout prevention it's probably someone that works with torture survivors so before we get too far into your story i want to go back to that so what are and i don't you don't have to share kind of experiences from that but what kind of self-care does a counselor working with torture survivors have to do or what were things that you did in that situation to take care of yourself
0: Yeah, yeah, Um, and this is where I have to pay attention to my kind of workaholism, because I really, really enjoy my work. I really enjoy my work, and so I've always kind of looked for the most intense version of it, and um, working with torture survivors was a really intense experience, and I did hear just kind of the, you know, the worst, things imaginable that you can think of one person doing to another person. And when I was doing that work and you know at a dinner party would tell someone what my job title was, they would ask me, isn't that so depressing? And of course it was. Um but the reason I stayed in that work is because I saw just the incredible resilience of the human spirit. And so that's that is what kept me going um, in that work. And you do we'll talk about with burnout prevention kind of what will fuel you and get you you know through 20 years of work like that um but really seeing resilience otherwise i wouldn't be doing this work if i you know just got paid to see people in counseling but it didn't actually help um i would burn out yeah and so doing effective work is a really is another really important part of burnout
1: Were, so are there times that stand out for you that you had a really rough day and you kind of processed it either on the drive home or like like I'm just thinking I know that there's clients that I've had that especially early in my career yeah you just don't forget and yeah when you've had those kind of days what did you do on the drive home so that when you were having dinner with your family Mm. you weren't you weren't just a mess
0: yeah I love I love that question because um, I definitely have times that stand out in my mind and When I talk to people about burnout prevention the place I always start is understanding the body's fight-or-flight response and so we know that memories are encoded more strongly um, in our memory when we have emotional responses to an experience. So I have imprinted in my mind um, a gentleman who I saw um, newly out of grad school who had really specific plans to um, commit suicide by cop and you know could hurt someone in the process and he was not ready for you know he was not interested in services and you know it ended in a wellness check and um, he eventually did get connected to services. but in that moment, I remember being so scared for him and scared for the situation. Um, And luckily I had really, really good support. So we were able to put um, a really good plan in place. But I remember that feeling of, you know, hyper arousal and heart beating fast and muscle tension and racing thoughts and that I was in fight or flight and something I've learned over the years with mindfulness and DBT is, you know, observing that reaction in the moment you know, reminding yourself that, you know, this is a challenging situation, but I am safe. If I'm not safe, I'm going to call 911. But if I'm safe, I can give myself permission to soothe the body. And because fight or flight interrupts executive functioning and other important, you know, aspects of, you know, you know, biological tools that you need to do your job and to make appropriate assessments, um, you need to interrupt that with, you know, paced breathing, or progressive muscle relax, or um, any, you know, a cup of tea, anything that soothes the body. And so something I learned early on was that if I'm feeling upset, probably my client is feeling upset as well in in a crisis like that. And it's a great time to just take a break and do some, you know, you know what, this is a really, Stressful you know conversation seems like let 's take a break and return to the breath, and I really want to understand you and I really want to hear you so giving myself permission as a counselor to take breaks um, in the session, so you know reducing the stress in the moment is a really important tool, and then definitely having rituals of separation after your day. so the first thing I do when I get home is I put on my comfiest pjs and you know i brush my teeth or i do anything that um, makes me feel separate from my day and mm. i talk to my family about other things and um you know I, I need to make sure that i have places and you know confidential spaces where i can seek consultation and process my feelings in that way and then when i'm home i'm home you know mm. i i look into the face of my children and i hug my partner tightly and I eat good food and I am mindful in those experiences as well.
1: Yeah, it's amazing how having those things that really bring out that mindfulness can separate you from the really difficult work we do. Um, yeah. Recently, I, I took up curling, you know, throwing cool. stones on the ice <laughs> and sweeping and uh, and it, I thought it was going to be a kind of easy sport and it's actually way harder than I thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, you know, when you're on the ice, it's really hard to be thinking about anything other than those stones and sweeping yeah. and not falling on your face because, you know, it's yeah. ice. and Yeah. Uh, I feel it, that it, way
0: about Zumba. You know, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> imposs- it's impossible not to smile when you're doing mm-hmm. Zumba and just the music is so good and you're in your right. body and – Or like my
1: wife, she's in an orchestra and to play music, you have to be paying attention to the notes and what's going on and everyone around you. And I think oftentimes on this podcast, we talk about kind of business and marketing and all those things that help our business and planning ahead. But there are those things that we have to also integrate into our lives that just totally shut our brains off from business or trauma or the work that we do as well.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I'm, I'm really happy you say that because I find not only mindfulness helpful, but also um, the frame for positive psychology. So Martin Seligman defines happiness. You know, when a, lot, when a lot of people think of happiness, they think of chocolates and vacations and long walks on the beach, and they're thinking of pleasure, right? And Seligman says that happiness is also flow you know, where you're immersed in an experience, you know, people experience Mm -hmm. it a lot in art or sports and then meaning. So I, when I talk about burnout prevention, I encourage people to think about, are they achieving that balance? So we as counselors are so fortunate that we, our jobs are just absolutely rich in meaning, which is one of the main reasons I do it. Um, And then within that, you can look for, you know, as a private practitioner, I'm going to look for opportunities, you know, if I have a no-show, I can call up one of my old nonprofit uh, colleagues and offer some free consultation, or I can give a talk at the local library, or I can do sliding scale for, you know, a DACA kid, and um, all of those give me meaning. Right. And then for me, flow comes from my specialty because I am absolutely in flow when I when I give a talk to, you know, if I go to a nonprofit and do a training on burnout prevention, I am in the zone because that is my bag. That is what I you know, enjoy talking about. And then pleasure. I think a lot of counselors actually struggle with building in pleasure into their routine. So. The way I've done that is I have a beautiful office in Oakland across the street from Lake Merritt. And if you've been to Oakland, you know that that's just the most beautiful spot. And I have a shower in my office building. So if I have a no show, I can take a run around the lake, Mm. which for me is just like, the, the peak of pleasure to be able to listen to a podcast, say practice of the practice and take a run around the lake and come back and be able to, you know, think clearly and be in flow and be doing meaningful work. So how much of that do
1: you think the, the counselors don't necessarily focus on pleasure comes from maybe that guilt. We were talking beforehand about kind of money mindset. And I wonder if, uh, whether it's having a nice office or allowing yourself the luxury of going for a run or having a couple, cup mm-hmm. of tea or even like spending a bunch of money on a nice dinner out comes yeah. from when you've seen the world, when you've dug latrines or, you know, I helped yeah. with a microfinance program in Haiti and it's like, yeah. you know, people are making a hundred bucks a year. Yeah. What, how can I spend a hundred dollars on a dinner out? Um, yeah. How much of that do you think is integrated into why we don't want to do it? Cause we have that, that guilt or that, that money mindset. Yeah.
0: I definitely think that survivor's guilt is humongous um, part of this work. And I I can only talk for myself, but it, um, you know, I have a lot of privilege just as a white, you know, heteronormative, able-bodied woman in the world. I carry layers and layers of privilege. And that is part of what drew me to the work is just you know, with great privilege comes great responsibility. I think Albert Einstein said that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just on a daily stress level, um, it is challenging because if you let survivor's guilt kind of into each and every one of your decisions, um, it's gonna end up being an unhealthy lifestyle. So um, when I think about guilt, I really wanna think about what's productive And so if if guilt helps me connect or pay attention to my values, that's really, really productive. That's really important to me because I, as someone who grew up in nonprofits, got a a really, really rich training. And I feel like I owe the community um, to give those skills back. And I have to have a sustainable business in order to do that. So I have hopes over the years of, training lots of new um professionals and I'm especially committed to working with immigrant communities and professionals of color and so that's something that I want to integrate into my business. But I do think you can do both. Um, and I think this is where, you know, DBT and the concept of the dialectic is really useful because you can do both and it's not yeah. yes but it's both and. Mm-hmm. It actually, it reminds me of um, just when I was becoming a mom and going through um, childbirth training classes, there was a woman who was asking, I forget exactly what her question was, but the birth coach's response to her was, you know, a lot of times new moms, um, maybe they think of themselves as a little bit more type A or planner. Think that all of a sudden when they become a parent, they have to become this natural, like woo woo mama. I think a lot of women feel pressure to do like drug free and you know, attachment parenting versus other or mommy blogs, mommy wars. Everyone, you know, a lot of moms feel that pressure. And the birth coach's advice to her was if you're a planner, do that, bring that into your birth experience. And so, I think, you know, as a counselor, if you have passions and if one of them is to give back to the community do that right and then Mm -hmm. and do it from a sustainable place well
1: and i think that there's also these kind of stages we go through i think about when i first got back from haiti when i was 21 or so Mm -hmm. and i remember being in a shower at a hotel in miami and just being like oh my gosh i'm wasting so much clean water and there's all this soap here and i shouldn't even flush the toilet and whether it's you know, seeing the world, whether it's, um, you know, I I think a lot of people will have spiritual experiences that disrupt maybe how they were raised or whatever it is that the life you've had, you have something that disrupts that. The the next phase oftentimes is you just deconstruct everything. If I can't believe that, then I'm not going to believe any of it, or I'm not going to, and there's almost this like tearing down the old. uh, But then it seems like as people grow and mature and kind of find more of a, A centered or grounded place within whatever your social work is, whatever your social justice is, whatever your spiritual change is, that you then kind of go back and find the things that were true in that original, whether it's a faith, whether it's a approach to the world, kind of whatever that change is, to then say, okay, here's the elements that I'm going to take from that, and I can throw out the rest, and that that maturing. Mm -hmm it seems like oftentimes, then people get more grounded in their work, they, they have more peace with being able to live their life. But then they also have what you were talking about that appreciation for, uh, I have a lot of privilege, you know, even just being anyone in the United States, our toilet water is cleaner than about 50% of the world's water. Yeah. And, and so even just that alone, or looking at when you look at like global rich and, and see where even if you make $20,000 a year, you line up according to the world. Well, that kind of gives you some perspective, but then if you live in guilt all the way through, that doesn't exactly help you change the world or improve the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, going back to the basics of CBT, you know, is that thought helping you or hurting you? Yeah. And is it helping you do the work that you want to do? You know, some of those thoughts are true. You know, mm-hmm. you do have proportionately more wealth and maybe you should give it all away, you know, Um, but would you be able to do the same kind of work if you didn't have a business that helped you, you know, gain access to people? I, because I do burnout prevention and I'm in the Bay area, I'm surrounded by really energized, talented people doing, you know, founding startups and creating completely new models and those tools impact our lives and i you know as a consumer want people in positions of power and influence and impact to be healthy and make sound decisions because Mm -hmm. we all as a society benefit from new ideas and hopefully that the person you know kind of influencing that is coming from a good place as well
1: yeah so you have 18, 19 years of this kind of background in nonprofits. And then a year ago, you launched your private practice. And I wanted mm-hmm. to spend some time hearing about kind of your view of the world. And because we, when we enter into private practice, oftentimes it feels like, well, we just have to do it the Joe Sanok way, or we just have <laughs> to do it the Allison Pereer way or the Zinnini way or whoever you follow. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and there's great tips in all of that. But then ultimately it's your private practice. And so- yeah. You came to private practice with you know, this big heart, years of, of background. How do you then take all of who you are as Anna mm-hmm. and then put that into starting a practice? What were things you considered? What were ways you approached it? Uh, take us through that kind of initial phase of starting the practice.
0: Well, some of that narrative I'm still writing, so I'm interested to see what comes next because this is really the first time in my life where I've always had a five-year plan and this is the first time in my life I'm just playing. I'm just doing the things that really make me happy. And um, all of it just kind of happens to you know be good work because i'm I'm trained in evidence-based counseling methods. So you know dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, um mindfulness, acceptance, and commitment therapy. All those tools are, really, really effective. So my new vision, you know, what I'm starting to craft is I want to disseminate those tools to as many people as possible. And I'm just a solo practitioner right now, um, but I'm kind of consulting with different startups and different models. And I have hopes um, in the future of starting a group practice and being a mentor to people um, new to the profession who want to get those um, skills which is really exciting for me because it helps me blend that micro and the macro. So I, part of my burnout prevention is not just seeing the problems that people, you know, tend to have, but also looking at systemic solutions to them. And um, something that's been really fun is using technology in my counseling practice. So um, I've partnered with an app called KIPP, which lets clinicians use, um, you know, clients get to use an app and then they do mood tracking and journaling and they can take assessments. And then the therapist has access to all that information. So Mm -hmm. I can see week to week, you know, I try this intervention and, um, it works, you know, and we get to see those results over time. So I've, taken, um, you know, all the tools that I've learned from my training in nonprofits. And now I'm just I'm playing with how to give those to um, lots of different people in lots of different contexts. So now I'm working more in work settings, um, people may be referred by their employers, or it may be an employee benefit. And that's also a really great way to gain access to people because, you know, we spend more time at work with our colleagues than we do with our partners and families, so that's a really important context to look at.
1: Yeah, and I I like that you use the word playing because a lot of people in their first couple years when they're in that start phase before they get to that growth and that scaling phase, I think take themselves really seriously and and we should on one level. Uh, but I've definitely done that. <laughs> right, right, and, and not that. Just because you're playing, you can't take yourself seriously, too. Uh, And there's a lot, you know, you want to reduce your risks. You want to make sure that you're kind of doing the right steps for where you're at. Um, But how did you get into that mindset of approaching it as play? Because that feels to me unique or different than a lot of people approach starting a practice.
0: It's new to me. (laughs) It's (laughs) new. It's not consistent with my personality. Like, I am a planner. Um, I'm very much type A. I like... I like knowing what's going to happen, and I'm I'm bringing that those skills. It turns out, you know, are useful in planning a private practice because I'm I'm comforted by, you know, being proactive, um, and. Private practice requires an openness because there are ups and downs. There's lots of possibilities and excitement. And I've already been amazed by the things that have come my way. Like just, you know, exactly as you've said on your podcast a million times, if you put out blog posts, you will be surprised by who will read them. And, you know, I've had startups approach me and say, we like, you know, we like these ideas and we want to do them and, Um, I've had individuals you know who are not coming to me in private practice but are just enjoying reading my work and that feels so good to me to be able to give that away for free and so it's a new it's I don't you know I think it comes from having such a I had kind of a regimented schedule the last couple of years cause I did a service grant with, um, that was funded through the federal government and that had a really strict schedule. And I just, I think I'm just thirsty for newness and flexibility and creativity. And I love nonprofits and I will always be an advocate for nonprofits and I will always look for ways to partner and give back. Um, but there are some structural difficulties there, you know, um, just restrictions from grants and kind of the way that we are used to doing things and so i just i just discovered this opportunity to shake things up and it turns out i really like it and it's fun um but it's not yeah it doesn't come it didn't come to me naturally
1: (laughs) yeah yeah so it's kind of of
0: out of necessity really
1: Yeah. So for people that are in that very startup phase, they're planning things out, what are maybe three to five things that you would say, here's some mindsets or some things to Uh do that were really helpful that maybe you picked up from the podcast or just from your own experiences that can save some people a bunch of time if they're at that startup phase?
0: Yeah, I would definitely say, I think... um, You know, what I had to learn for myself, I didn't necessarily get this from the podcast. Well, maybe tidbits here and there, but I had to kind of make this mistake for myself before I learned this lesson, but love the process and not just the outcome. So if you get, you know, if your emotions are tied to, ooh, I got three new clients this week or gotten no calls in the last month, your mood (laughs) is not going to average out, you know, it's going to have peaks and valleys and so you know i gave the example of i i didn't start out loving marketing but now i do really enjoy writing you know i take that as kind of my journaling time and um i think of it as a way to give back um and so you know looking for ways to love the process and not just the outcome Um, and part of that is dealing with the inner critic because you know, the the day I heard you say on one of your podcasts that you didn't have your first client for six months, that made me feel so much better, um, because it took me six months to get my first client, and I had all these terrible thoughts of, you know, I'm a bad therapist, and people just came to me before because I gave away free therapy, and. Um, and then that week that I got my first client, I got three clients from three different sources. And so obviously, you know, that six months of startup accumulated and now now my, my days are full. And so that happened in a really short amount of time. But in the meantime, you know, I did notice a lot of critical thoughts. And yeah. so with that, you can, you know, you can use CBT and you can challenge the inner critic. And you know, correct those thought distortions. Um, But for me, it was hard because I didn't have a lot of evidence of you know you will have a thriving practice because I haven't done that yet. Mm -hmm. And so, for and I actually felt kind of down on myself. I'm a therapist; (laughs) I should be able to make myself feel better, right? And sometimes we kind of you know, as therapists, can get mad at ourselves for not being perfect basically. And so what ended up working better for me during that phase was accepting the inner critic and, you know, practicing, okay, there's a critical thought, you know, you're feeling scared. This isn't working out quite the way you want it to yet. Um, There goes one of those thoughts again. And that, you know, really, you know, brings up mindfulness again, because when you think about the difference between pain and suffering, you know, pain is something that's a fact of life and suffering is something we do. It's our reaction to the pain. So you're going to have pain starting out of private practice. Uh, your partner might notice that you're a little bit more grumpy. You might feel a pinch financially. Um, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. Um, and so just kind of notice your inner critic as it comes up and you can either challenge it or you can accept it. Um, And then boundaries kind of go along with that. So um, having really good external boundaries, you talk about this all the time, but don't take cases that are not for you out of desperation. Um, I remember meeting someone that I would have been really excited to work with who would have been my first client, but she was a friend of a friend. It just wasn't, it wasn't appropriate, but I definitely felt that pull of like, Ooh, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I could work with her. Um, but you have to keep really, really good, um, external boundaries. And then of course, internal boundaries is kind of how you treat yourself and, um, you know, turning your phone off at night and,
1: you turning know, your brain off when you're with turning. people that you love yes <laughs> yes. I it, it's, yes you know over the years Christina and I have had to kind of figure out how best to do that because I'm such an ideas person that you know mm-hmm. we'll be driving to Thanksgiving and I'll be like oh my gosh I could do this oh my gosh <laughs> I could do this and um so now it'll be like okay I have an idea do you want to hear about it and she'll be like okay but just five minutes <laughs> or like uh That's great. Yeah, or can I poke? She'll say, "Can I poke holes in it?" And it's like, "Okay, yes, you can." Yeah, don't ruin my
0: new idea. Right.
1: (laughs) Um, But I think that those that are around us are gonna get sick of hearing about our business, and if we're not asking for permission to share about that, then it, you know, you, you just don't want your business to take over because it's easy. To when you're excited about something, especially when you've done really difficult work, that yeah. you know nonprofit work. Oh man, I did that for years, and there's parts of it. Usually, people say I love the work itself, but I I hate the you know policy or I hate the infrastructure, yeah. and you know there's so much about it that's just draining that doesn't often feel like it serves the purpose of what the nonprofit's doing. That then, when you yeah. finally are in your own practice and you didn't know you wanted to be your own boss, you're like well, this is pretty sweet to be my own boss. Yeah, right. And and so when you're so excited about what you're doing, it's easy to kind of flood those around you with your excitement, but you don't always want to hear it.
0: Yeah, which is why the other kind of, no one will be surprised to hear the other tip is getting support, right? You know, make Mm -hmm. sure that you have a professional consultation group, that you have, um, you know, we need to destigmatize therapy, and as therapists say, you know, we as therapists need um, to get our own, professional support, um, definitely family support. Like you're saying, kind of ask your partner's consent <laughs> before just dumping on them about your day or your new idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I self-care is a great idea, um, but it's really not a perfect term because we need to take care of each other. And so I think therapists are definitely vulnerable to that of, um, you know, we, can, we have all the skills and we can do it all. Um, but looking for ways to include other people in our process and take, you know, be taken care of as well. Thank you so much for joining me as we listened in to this flashback episode from practice of the practice. I hope you enjoyed hearing a little bit about my background. And I know I really enjoyed hearing this conversation because um, it was fun to think about the things that are very much still true in my practice, like that feeling of playfulness that I describe here is still really important to me, and sustainability, and giving back, um, and my commitment to workplace wellness. So it was really just refreshing to hear um, that conversation that I got to have with Joe, and um, I'm feeling appreciative of um, taking the time to think about that. So Some of the things that I'm looking forward to with my practice are the burnout prevention hackathons that I host with my workplace partners as we provide self-care trainings for staff to buffer folks against daily stresses on the job. So that's an example of some of the things that I continue to think about in my practice as, you know, including this podcast as I think about ways to expand access to burnout prevention resources. So thank you again for listening to the episode. And I'd love to hear your contributions to the conversation. If you have ideas about ways to expand burnout prevention resources, tips, tricks, and self-care ideas, you can also check out my website, therapyforreallife.com. And of course, in the show notes, we'll have a link to the Practice of the Practice podcast for all those therapists out there that are also working to model effective self-care in their work. Thank you for listening. Have a fantastic day.